Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast Christina Heatherton. Christina is Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College. And she's also author of Arise Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. So Christina, thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Let's start with a basic question. What is the Mexican Revolution? Why did it happen when it did? And since this is a book about its global impact, why did it resonate so much around the world? Sure. Well, the Mexican Revolution is often narrated as a contained nationalist event, one that broke out in 1910. Um, and this was the result of opposition that had coalesced against the Mexican president, Porfirio Diaz, who ruled for over three decades in an increasingly dictatorial regime. So his reign's called the Porfiriato. And in this period, the country was modernized. You see things like remote territories being connected to, you know, growing urban centers through new roads and rails. Goods are moved through trains, ports, pipelines. You see these massive incursions of foreign investment in factories, mines, agriculture culture, oil. Um, And all of these transformations required the mass dispossession of the peasantry, who constituted almost three quarters of the country, um, as well as the increasing exploitation of industrial workers, uh, who included renters and sex workers. You saw a growing middle class who was frustrated with its lack of political representation. You could imagine if you have essentially a dictator for over three decades, you have, uh, you know, fractions of the country that don't have political representation. Um, In this period of time, fractions grew among the elites, foreign investors grew really wary of the turmoil. The government tried to rule with an iron fist, um, particularly through its federal police. So you see this dramatic loss of legitimacy, uh, you know, the shrinking support of the population um, and uh, uh, dissent developing among national and international power blocks. So you have the perfect cauldron for revolution that exploded in 1910. But of course, uh, you know, as I'd be happy to talk about, though this is often narrated as a national story, this uh, needs to be understood as a global story. Yeah, l- let's talk about that. And maybe we could even start with the, your first chapter is titled How to Make a Flag Internationalism in the Pivot of 1848. So maybe we could start there and then go through the revolution a bit, because it uh, has, to say the least, a lot of twists and turns. Sure. Well, let me say this. The conditions that exploded uh, in revolution in Mexico were certainly not unique to Mexico in the period. There were a lot of countries that were pulled into the frenzy of finance capital in the late 19th century. I mean, throughout the Western Hemisphere, throughout the world, you see mass dispossession, the loss of subsistence agriculture, the unmooring of people from previous modes of production, um, a process that produced like a number of migrants and also a number of global rebels. So, You know, as Mike Davis has described throughout a number of his works, what's really interesting about this turn of the century period is it was not an era that was singularly dominated by industrial worker strikes in the Western world, as had been foretold, but it was an epic of... uh, Uh, an epoch of peasant wars, anti-colonial struggles, rebellions against dispossession. Um, 
And it's really important to account for all the forms of rebellion that developed as a result. So, you know, one thing that I'm arguing is that this era, this era that I'm broadly talking about as the era of the Mexican Revolution, which, as you correctly point out, you know, precedes the revolution itself, um, I'm really thinking about it as coterminous to the rise of U.S. hegemony. So, uh, you know, by the outbreak of the revolution, over a quarter of all U.S. investments lay in Mexico. U.S. financiers owned over 80 percent of Mexican mineral rights. U.S. entities owned more of Mexico's surface than Mexico did. And the first time the U.S. became a creditor nation was in Mexico. So partially what I'm arguing is that it was in Mexico that the U.S. developed new forms of indirect rule, a new modality of imperialism, which was not simply direct territorial seizure or governance, but indirect rule through finance, control of banks, judges, legislatures, you know, all under the threat of military intervention. So partially what I'm arguing is that it was in relationship to Mexico that the U.S. developed the capacities with which it would come to superintend the global capitalist economy. Totally agree with that. And I think that was just so brilliantly formulated. I, w- I want to make a TikTok of that and send it around to all of the Zoomers. Um, but maybe I just want to say you're welcome to the rest of the <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, th- uh, thanks. You're welcome, world. <laughs> so maybe actually, since you brought it up, we could pause on that for a second. And could you talk a little bit about how the nature of American imperialism was was unique from other forms of imperialism at the time and how this this move from con- first continental expansion, of course, and displacement and genocide against indigenous peoples and and then you know the Mexican-American war and expanding beyond recognized borders shaped U.S. imperialism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. How is that different from other forms of imperialism? And what do you see as Mexico's crucial role? Because, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a, a brilliant way to put it. Yeah, well, you know, the book is really framed by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's concept of the new imperialism. And this is a, a concept he spells up a, a, across a number of his writings, but particularly in a 1915 essay for the nation called The African Roots of War. And there he's really characterizing, you know, this is a reflection on the Berlin Conference, on the scramble for Africa in the lead up to World War One. But in this article, he's talking about a new modality of imperialism coming into being in the late 19th century. And some of the characteristics are the the ways that this form of imperialism appears to be seemingly democratized, right? So unlike previous modalities of empire, you know, where only kings and aristocrats, you know, under um, absolutist regimes uh, could be enfranchised by empire, this this new modality, uh, you know, produced kings for men, Rockefellers, Carnegie's, you know, as I talk about Charles Stillman and his son, James Stillman, um, but the way that this was expressed was that it wasn't the ability of the capitalist class to uh, newly participate in an expanded way in this modality of empire, but it was expressed as the proverbial working man who had new opportunities, who, as Du Bois described, imagined themselves to be small shareholders of empire. So, uh, you know, I, I The Jeffersonian this- fantasy, basically, the fulfillment of the Jeffersonian fantasy. The, well, certainly related to the Jeffersonian fantasy fantasy but you know as uh, as commentators who lived in the period of the mid 19th century like Frederick Douglass observed you have a massive expansion of the capitalist uh, global economy particularly from the mid to late 19th century so you know there are elements of the uh, you know, previous modalities of empire that are coming to inform this new modality that Du Bois is talking about is the new imperialism. But there is something distinct. And, 
the reason I go to Du Bois is because of the way that he's describing, you know, what I talk about as the subjectivity of the new imperialism. Uh, there's a way in which, um, the specific interests of capitalists are being understood and, and expressed as the general interest across the color line. So, you know, uh, <laughs> there's like a lot of different directions I can go here. Um, go whatever uh, one you want. We, all right. We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so in the book, I talk about a few. I, you know, I, I go through, for example, John Reed's writings about Mexico, you know, famously before his book on the Russian Revolution, The Ten Days That Shook the World, the book that he wrote before was called Insurgent Mexico. He also reported extensively in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. And what people don't know as well is that he wrote a series of short stories about Amer Americans in Mexico uh, during the period of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and, you know, through his stories, through stories like B. Travin's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Langston Hughes' own reflections in uh, his memoir, The Big Sea, you, you really see the characterization of a kind of fortune hunter, you know, somebody who feels not only emboldened to go, as you said, you know, fulfill the Jeffersonian model of, uh, you know, classic yeomanship, but who can become, as Du Bois calls, a small shareholder of empire who believes that it is their right to act as a Carnegie, as a Rockefeller, who can make their fortune in another country. Um, and I'll just say finally that the reason I thought that Du Bois's framing was so interesting is that it really aligns with what Giovanni, Giovanni Arrighi talks about as the essential rise of U.S. hegemony in the same period. So Arrighi's talking about different, he calls them systemic cycles of accumulation. So he's, he's really thinking about how in this period you see the waning of British hegemony and the rise of U.S. hegemony. And I'm saying if you think about Arrighi's formulation in relationship to Du Bois, and you think about how this became hegemonic, right? How people bought into this idea that empire was democratized, that there were, you know, more ways in for the proverbial working man, for the everyday man to, you know, themselves be a small shareholder of empire. And you think about the relationship of Mexico in that transformation. I think you get a very different story of U.S. US hegemony and its rise in the period. So this reminds me a bit of the wages of whiteness argument, both from Du Bois and then also how it was constituted in the 90s about why, you know, why basically why didn't the working class unite? How do you think the, the increasing racialization over the course of the 19th century relates to the story you're telling uh, about uh, basically taking a new look on the rise of American imperialism? Where does race play into this vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and Mexico? Sure. Well, I talk a lot in the book about how Du Bois theorizes the color line. Um, and I'm, you know, both drawing on his definition and I'm also using it to problematize a little bit about some of the ways that we imagine race is operating. So, you know, I, I think there's some danger in thinking about racism as a trans historical phenomenon that operates in the same way in all places and times. And I also think that it's not a particularly accurate analytic to think about race as something <clears throat> simply grafted on to color. This is something that not only Du Bois problematized, but something that I mentioned Frederick Douglass also problematized. One of the first uses of the term, the color line, comes from an essay that Frederick Douglass writes in the 80s. And he says, you know, color itself is neutral, but it's the thing that uh, with which it is coupled that makes it hated. So, you know, the the 
introduction and the first chapter really do a lot to, to flesh out uh, how Du Bois is thinking about the color line as the basis of a materialist analysis of this new modality of, uh, you know, what he's describing as the new imperialism in relationship to Mexico. So, um, uh, so, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, so, you know, I think what Du Bois is very successful at describing is how new capitalist space is being produced uh, globally in this period with this attention to how, you know, what he's describing as the, like, you know, uh, white working class people are imagining themselves as white, but also imagine themselves as, uh, you know, masters of the world. They are basically, you know, when, when I talk about this being hegemonic, when I talk about people being, um, you know, called into seeing the world the same way the capitalists see the world, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking about the expression of, you know, how the thing becomes hegemonic, how the specific interest gets expressed as the general interest. And so by thinking about Mexico, not just as a country, but in the way that people like Rockefeller, like Carnegie, like Hearst, like uh, Charles Stillman, saw Mexico as a site of investment, by adopting that vantage point, by thinking about this country and its people as sources of raw material, as sources of labor, by, by by taking on that vantage point, I'm, I'm arguing that this gives us a sense of how Du Bois is talking about the way that the color line uh, facilitates the expansion of the new imperialism. Let's talk about the revolution. How does the revolution concretize the theoretical argument that you've been making? Right. Well, one person that I haven't mentioned so far uh, is Ricardo Flores Magón, who I, uh, you know, who along with Du Bois and Arie, I'm really thinking about in order to theorize the era of the Mexican Revolution, this period of new imperialism, the rise of U.S. hegemony. So Ricardo Flores Magón is, you know, this key journalist, author, agitator, organizer of the Partido Liberal Mexicano, the PLM. Um, which is an entity that first, uh, you know, this is an early agitator uh, um, against the Porfiriato and against Porfirio Diaz's regime. I mean, you know, he he's protesting like, you know, I mean, from a very early age uh, against the repression of this regime. And what's so interesting about Magon's writings that I talk uh, a bit about in the book are the ways in which he's recognizing um the, you know, not just the transformation of the economy in the Porfiriato and, and not just the kind of general incursion of foreign capital and how that's transforming the country, how that's producing dispossession, how that's producing mass immiseration, how it's like fomenting the conditions for revolution. But he's also, you know, very interestingly attentive to like foreign capital in general, but U.S. capital in particular. And so, you know, I end the first chapter with a quote from him where he says, you know, soon nothing will be done in this country without the consent of Del Tio Samuel, you know, without the consent of Uncle Sam, that he's, you know, not necessarily ruling us by putting his flag over our country, but he's ruling us through our banks, through our judges, through local networks of control, you know, which are much harder to trace. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the Mexican Revolution does not happen just because of U.S. investment, but the U.S. does have an increasing stake in the redevelopment 
government of the country. And people like Magon recognized this. Uh, people like Magon, you know, were simultaneously organizing against their government and against foreign capital. Uh, and, you know, people like Magon also, uh, Flores Magon also organized both in Mexico and outside of Mexico because they understood that this was a revolution that was, um, was being produced by global capital and it would have to be resisted, you know, through global solidarity. What is meant by that? Because this is the thing that the left often always refers to, global solidarity, transnational solidarity, solidarity across borders. What did he actually mean by that? What institutions was he working through? Um, And what was Magon's vision of this sort of solidarity? Sure. Well, you know, most of what I write about Malon uh, takes place in chapter three of the book, which is called How to Make a University. And there I'm thinking about his writings uh, in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas, as well as the writings that got him locked up. And, you know, in those writings and in a number of other writings, he's commanding the world to witness, he says, uh, you know, what's happening to Mexican people, Mexican workers, Mexican organizers. Um, and I think that, you know, it's in his writings uh, in particular that dislodged the shibboleth that the Mexican Revolution was only relevant for Mexican people, that it only looked to Mexicans in Mexico to agitate and organize, you know, because he's um, he's thinking on both sides of the border about how to amass support to overthrow a dictatorial regime. So specifically, you know, there's really fascinating ways in which Magon um, and the PLM, Flores Magon and the PLM are organizing uh, with entities across borders like the industrial workers of the world, like the Western Federation of Miners, you know, like, I mean, the, the base of their support in Mexico is coming from a newly industrialized proletariat that's working in uh, fields like mining, like oil. And historians like Deborah Weber have done a really extraordinary job of tracing how workers moved across different spaces, how they moved across borders, um, and, uh, you know, saw that their, their, their fortunes were linked, their fates were linked, um, that, uh, you know, a necessary solidarity had to develop across borders in, in order for like, in, in order for people to achieve freedom. So, you know, I mean, what's interesting about somebody like Flores Magón is, uh, well, there's, there's a lot that's interesting about uh, Ricardo Flores Magón, um, but, uh, you know, there's both the kind of specific on the ground organizing. There's what he was able to see within his own time. And then there is also, as I try to describe in the book, the kind of convergences that in looking as at his life, we can think about who he was in dialogue with. Right. What other political currents came to inform his definition of, of international solidarity and how in turn his vision and the vision of the Mexican Revolution came to inform visions of internationalism and international solidarity in ways that I think we're yet to grapple with. We'll come to that in a second, but I think before we do, we just have to be specific about the revolution itself. And and what do you think listeners need to know about the revolution qua revolution to understand how it had this global impact that you explore in the book? The Mexican Revolution is the first major social conflagration of the 20th century. It precedes the Russian Revolution. And so part of what I'm arguing in the book is there's a different trajectory of internationalism that we can trace if we begin from the Mexican Revolution, rather than I think what's customary to think uh, about the Russian Revolution. In fact, 
you know, the argument that I make in the book begins not in 1910 with the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, but in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended the U.S.-Mexico War. Um, And partially what I'm arguing there is that there's a geographic pivot, that there's a new shape of global capitalism that comes into being in the late 19th century that we can really see in relationship in the U.S.'s relationship to Mexico. So, I mean, part of this is an argument about the Mexican Revolution itself, ways in which we have any number of global radicals who are in Mexico in the period of the revolution. There are ways in which Mexican revolutionaries traveled outside of Mexico. But there's also this just transmission of ideas, a kind of consciousness about imperialism, about racism, about capitalism that precedes the Russian Revolution that I think is really interesting to think about. At the the same time, I think there's just a broader argument uh, in the book about loosening our grip a little bit about some of the formulations we have about revolution and internationalism in the 20th century that really have as their anchor the Russian Revolution um, and and think about internationalism as, uh, you know, in the organized forms of the first, second, third international uh, and the, you know, and the Soviet Union that I think at, at, at this moment hamper rather than uh, advance our understanding of revolutionary possibilities at present. Talk a little more about that. What what hampers us and, and, and how do we move beyond it and how does your work contribute to that? Because I, I think you're right. I just want to hear a little bit more about it. Well, uh, you know, I'll say two things. The first is that the book is called Arise, and the title, you know, self-consciously takes the first word of the international, the, the anthem to internationalism as its title, Arise Ye Prisoners of Starvation, Arise Ye Wretched of the Earth. And I think that there's a number of texts which have thought about the possibilities of internationalism and revolution in, you know, people's own period that have self-consciously drawn from the the song itself. So, you know, most famously is Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, which is thinking about uh, the question of anti-colonial movements in Algeria and beyond. Um I was really moved by uh, one of the organizers I talk in the book, whose name is Dorothy Healy, who was a longtime member of the Communist Party in California and did a lot of organizing work, uh, you know, with Mexican workers that I talk about. Um, She was... uh, she did an extensive oral history by Maurice Isherman, where she says, you know, if I ever wrote a memoir, I would want to call it Traditions Chains Have Bound Us. So this is a slight adaptation of the lyric that goes, no more traditions chains shall bind us. Instead, she's saying traditions chains have bound us. And she says, as soon as, you know, and this is shortly after she leaves the Communist Party, she says, as soon as a revolutionary movement stops being able to take an assessment of its own situation and respond to it, It ceases to become radical. It becomes something else. It becomes dogma. So part of the reason that I am am thinking about the histories that I'm thinking about is because I I do think that we need a reevaluation for our own moment. And I'm trying to be quite explicit with the title. So, you know, one of the big interventions of the book is to think about what I'm describing as convergent spaces. So these are sites where different radical traditions are compressed and people produce new articulations of struggle. And and this is just a kind of fancy way of saying, you know, there's a lot more theoretical work that's happening in everyday organizing. There's a lot of different ways in which people come with different 
you know, histories of radical traditions, with different conceptions of revolutionary change. And there are different ways in struggle that people have to kind of like figure it out, compare notes, learn from each other, talk to each other, debate these things out, uh, and subsequently produce advances in the way we understand theory and practice. And so I suppose the intervention specifically is to be able to say, at this moment, we we would do better to lean less on the kind of uh, revolutionary thinkers that we think got it right in the past. And we could all develop a lot more courage to try to confront the moment before us. So the um, I think the second chapter of your book is on small shareholders and global radicals. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on in revolutionary Mexico itself and why you focus on these uh, figures? Sure. So there's a few figures that I focus on in this book. One of them, uh, I talk about Paul Kochi, who was an Okinawan radical who came like my family came uh, through revolutionary Mexico into the United States. And in the process, he describes in his memoir, Iman no Iowa, how he developed an internationalist consciousness. I talk about M.N. Roy, who was contradictorily one of the founders of the Mexican Communist Party, even though he was... Um, he was born in India, and his fights initially began as a struggle against British colonialism. Uh, I talk about John Reed, who I mentioned earlier, the famous journalist, author, and radical. And I also talk about Langston Hughes briefly. And maybe just to answer your question, I can talk a little bit about Hughes. So, you know, the interesting thing about the subjectivity of the new imperialism and this kind of like philosophy of the color line is that, uh, you know, in this period and in our own, the ways in which people are conscripted to think, uh, I mean, to participate in racist regimes towards the production of capitalist space, like it's not just restricted to white people. There are a number of people who bought into this idea that they could become small shareholders who could, who saw the world in the ways that the Rockefellers, you know, and other. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a large amount of people who bought into it. That's what makes it powerful. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, no surprise there, uh, but I, I thought that one of the m- most um, interesting meditations on this was Langston Hughes uh, in his memoir, The Big Sea. So, you know, a lot of people know his famous poem, you know, that begins, I've known rivers, but not a lot of people know that he wrote it on his way to Mexico to see his father. Uh, you know, and in the big C, he describes his father. His father was the kind of prototypical small shareholder of empire or a man who imagined himself as, as such, right? Who went to Mexico, became a small landowner, became, you know, tried to fulfill the kind of fantasy of the new imperialism, believed that he could be a kind of like, um, you know, a king among men in a way that was unavailable to him as a black man in Jim Crow, uh, in the Jim Crow United States. And Hughes, you know, has an extraordinary uh, reflection about watching his father deal with indigenous Mexican peasants who work on his hacienda, right? And in and and in the 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 memoir, he actually starts triangulating his experiences and says he has a better understanding of the kind of racism that his working class mother faced in Chicago by understanding how his father imagined himself in relationship to these indigenous uh, uh, you know peasants that worked. Uh, the Hacienda. So, you know, I, I, I use a series of stories, some are from memoirs, some are from political writings to be able to just kind of 
in the second chapter, give readers a sense of, you know, what this subjectivity looked like, felt like, who bought into it. And, you know, as, as you just uh, reinforced, you know, that this, even though we're talking about a color line, and yes, even though Du Bois wrote extensively about the wages of whiteness, it was not simply what we might imagine today as, as white people who were, you know, the sole adherents of this. Thanks. That, that was just a really useful and, and I think important way to put it. Um, so we already talked a bit about Magon, but is there anything that you would like to add about how he imagined this internationalism in Leavenworth Penitentiary, given that you talked a little bit more about the Mexican Revolution and what he took from it when he's in prison in in uh, Kansas? And correct me if I'm wrong, he, w- he had anarchist leanings, Right. Yeah. He. So this is also part of the anarchist tradition. And he was writing back and forth with Southern California anarchists. He goes back and forth. So so he's someone who like lived a genuinely transnational life and is imagining this sort of international anarchist space. So if if you had anything to say about that and sort of the fate of anarchism, too, which was a live political philosophy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, well. I think Ricardo Flores Magón's story in Leavenworth Penitentiary is fascinating. So fascinating, in fact, I wrote a chapter about it. But uh, the um, <laughs> let me just say a little bit about Leavenworth Penitentiary. So the chapter that I write about is in uh, World War One, right? So I'm really thinking about the years 1917 to 1921 in this prison, and this is important because in World War One, the U.S. passed a few pieces of important federal legislation. Continue to be important today: the Espionage and Sedition Act, right? And they. In- Mexico, if I recall. Yes. yes. And, and yes. Pancho Villa does his famous attack on uh, in New Mexico, right, during the Absolutely. war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, um, as authors like Frederick Katz, among others, have talked about, you know, like Mexico is, is certainly something that U.S. Uh, hegemony is sharpening itself against in this period. But these new pieces of federal legislation make essentially political dissent a federal crime. So what's so interesting about looking at the federal penitentiaries in this period is that you kind of have a who's who of organizing in the U.S. in these prisons together. So Leavenworth is the largest of the federal penitentiaries and incarcerated in the period were anarchists, socialists, pacifists, uh, Mexican revolutionaries, members of the Ghadar movement, you know, Indian militants who were uh, organizing against British colonialism in the U.S. Uh, and and beyond. So I take the title or I take uh, I, I draw heavily from some of the federal surveillance records that, uh, you know, the Department of Justice described Leavenworth Penitentiary as a university of radicalism because there was this consistent problem of people being incarcerated in Leavenworth as criminals, so-called criminals, and being released as organizers. Uh, you know, this was a military prisoner. Uh, so you had a lot of working class prisoners incarcerated, you know, for small crimes or crimes like mutiny or uh, coming in, meeting with like these extraordinary organizers. I mean, t- just to name a few, you have Big Bill Haywood, who was one of the leaders of the industrial workers of the world. You have Ben Fletcher, who was one of the key black organizers in the IWW. You have people who would go on to be uh, leaders in the Communist Party. You have key pacifists. And, and so, you know, and then you have Mexican revolutionaries like Ricardo Flores Magón, like his comrade Librado Rivera, like his brother Enrique Flores Magón. And what I found in the records is that 
you know, people do what they do in spaces of extreme repression and duress. They organize. And in order to organize with each other, they have to educate each other. So going into the prison records, you see how they talk to one another. You see the uh, books they ordered, the conversations, the articles they wrote together. There was actually a a university that they established in the prison uh, where, you know, five nights a week, they were giving each other lectures on histories and theories of revolution. You had language classes and, you know, in the in memoirs, in letters, in reflections by people who had been incarcerated there, you get a sense of how people came to a different kind of consciousness about international solidarity as a result of their confinement there. So this is a kind of archetypical example of what I'm describing in the book is convergence spaces. It's so interesting. And and because your book is is almost generated by contemporary questions, I was wondering if you if you had any thoughts about prison as a space for organizing today, or is the state apparatus so oppressive, are prison conditions so terrible that they can't act as these sorts of convergence spaces in the same way that they might have in the early part of the 20th century or in Attica or other places? What's your thought on that? Yeah, well, let me say a few things. First, you know, in the chapter and in general, you know, I certainly don't romanticize the prison as a site of uh, organizing, you know, as I, I, I make pains to stress in the book, you know, it's no, primarily- prisons are terrible. Agreed. American prestige is against prisons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of my own political development comes in relationship to questions of housing, policing, and prisons. You know, before this book, I co-edited a a book called Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I mean, frankly, like I started doing a lot of work around housing. And if you're going to work around housing or poverty in this country, you're, you're also inevitably working on issues of the PIC and prisons. So, I mean, to answer your question, like, Of course, these are the most inhospitable environments in which to organize. And of course, we end up taking our lead from the type of organizing that happens under the most severe conditions of unfreedom and duress. And I I think one thing that maybe we lose sight of is the kind of trace of previous uh, generations of organizing that are actually present within the prison. You know, so to talk specifically about Leavenworth, there's a... um, a scholar named Alana Eladio Gomez, who writes a book about Leavenworth in the 60s and 70s and, and thinks about the kind of convergence that's happening there among Mexican radicals, Puerto Rican independistas, and the kind of way in which people repurposed a space of confinement as a space of organizing. If you think about the, you know, memoirs of Asada Shakur or Angela Davis, you know, or, or even, you know, a little farther back, some of the radicals in the Depression who were organizing then, you all always see them encountering the prison library, a set of radical books or texts, which other generations of organizers who found themselves in a position of confinement had to confront those conditions and tried to repurpose it. So there's a kind of like accretions of struggle uh, that I think we would be remiss to think about any kind of organizing within prison or against prisons is happening without that. Uh, I just want to be clear if there are any prison companies that want to advertise with the show, we'll change our. We our are open. Here. We are open. Yeah, we're open for business, uh, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> Christina, you, ha- you you have a, a a chapter in the book about Alexandra Kolontai, and I'm sort of uh, hoping you could talk a little bit about 
who she was and her experience in Mexico as a Soviet diplomat, both as a as somebody who had experienced the Bolshevik Revolution and as a woman in Mexico in this uh, kind of the the aftermath of the revolution. Maybe just you could give a little bit of her story. Sure. Well, when you tell people you're writing a book about the Mexican Revolution and internationalism, I think there, even if this is not a super familiar topic, I think there's some traditional people that you know, we might think about, you might think about Diego Rivera and the Mexican muralists, you know, you might think about the kind of Mauricio Tino Trio has this famous essay where he thinks about the cosmopolitan Mexican summer and like all the different, uh, you know, ways in which, uh, uh, people talk about is when Mexico was in vogue and there were like artists and Sergei Eisenstein comes to Mexico and, you know, there's, uh, uh, Alfred Stieglitz and uh, Tino Modotti. There's like this whole world of internationalist artists in Mexico City, particularly organizing a lot of their activities in the Soviet embassy. And this for people is like what internationalism in, you know, related to the Mexican Revolution looks like. So I make a kind of weird choice to talk about the period right after when, you know, as some of her contemporaries described, you know, the party was over. So Alexandra Kolontai is a really interesting figure. She served as the ambassador of the Soviet Union to Mexico for a very short period of time, from the end of 1926 into, you know, about the summer of 1927. But I think her story is fascinating for a number of reasons. Just to kind of cut to the quick, one of the most interesting things is that she is a Bolshevik feminist. She was one of the first women ever appointed to a, a, like a, a formal cabinet of a, of a new government. She was the Soviet commissar of public welfare. I might be getting that exact title wrong just now, but, you know, essentially she's charged with thinking about civil society, particularly, I think, in the places that we might not typically, particularly in the places that sometimes fall out of our vision of, you know, who who counts within a nuclear family structure. So she's thinking, you know, her, her charge is to think about the orphans. Her charge is to think about disabled people, veterans, divorced women, you know, single mothers, the, the, the infirm, the like, uh, you know, people that are not attached uh you know, that, that are, are not ensconced within a heteronormative, you know, patriarchal family, but nonetheless, you know, constitute an enormous part of society. And, you know, like there's this really interesting dialectic between how her feminism brings her to these places and how in the process of just trying to imagine how a revolutionary state would address, you know, like everybody who's marginalized in that society you know, also builds her own feminism. So, you know, I thought that this was just a really extraordinary story, right? I mean, I like up until I think that part in the book, I've thought a lot about, I've thought about a lot of dudes, you know, who are thinking about revolution, who are having revolutionary adventures. But, you know, here's this feminist who like, you know, she's, she occupies, I think, a really interesting place that's worth thinking about. What does it mean to actually try to build a state that requires a rethinking of gender and sexuality, right? And what does it mean for her to then be essentially exiled, but, you know, put in this position where she's in Mexico, uh, in this new state that's forming, that's 
also trying to wrestle with similar questions, however imperfectly. My argument is not, you know, that she just like solved all the problems in the Soviet Union and then went to Mexico and, and, and taught them how to solve their own problems. But I think there's a really interesting convergence of how we think about revolutionary feminism that we can trace through her and just trace through this kind of problematic about how do you actually think about building a new society that doesn't just reproduce everything that, pardon my French, you know, is like shitty about the old one? It makes a lot of sense. And and it's, it's interesting because your last three chapters all focus on, on women. And I mentioned Southern California earlier, but maybe we could talk a little bit about Dorothy Healy. And, and just for listeners, we're, we're doing kind of a greatest hits of the book, but I just re- really want to underline that this is an excellent book and that people who want to know about these questions of revolution and how they came to be should really check it out. But maybe we could talk a little bit about, about Healy and why did you focus on her? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for the compliment. I appreciate that. I'm happy to talk about Southern California. It's a place I've lived quite a long time. Um, and actually, it was a lot of like uh, organizing and activist work in Southern California that brought me to the book, to this chapter. So, And of course, um, Mike Davis, I mean, like Mike Davis is that whole panoply, like all of his work is on this. And so it's such, a, it's such an interesting site to explore these questions, I think. I'm writing about LA right now myself, and just it is, it is an embodiment of American imperialism in almost every possible way one could imagine. No doubt. No doubt. Um, and I tell you, you know, it was Mike that tipped me off. I, I, I had conversations with Mike Davis about Dorothy Healy. You know, Dorothy uh, was a mentor, a one-time landlord to Mike Davis, was like his, you know, debate sparring partner, was sometimes his key antagonist. But like she was extremely critical to his own political formation. And, you know, he was responsible for uh, the transfer or he, you know, helped in a significant way transferring her papers to uh, Cal State Long Beach, where I consulted them. So Dorothy Healy was, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, she was a a key organizer in Southern California. She was a member of the Communist Party. And, uh, you know, in this chapter, I'm really interested in two roles that she played. One, she was... um, you know, I start the chapter in a jail in Brawley, uh, which is right on the U.S.-Mexico border. And she's singing with a number of striking, uh, you know, women who had been arrested in this lettuce strike in uh, the early 30s. And, you know, she she had been sent um, by the party. Uh, you know, some, some of the striking workers had come to Los Angeles to ask for help because the Communist Party had been, you know, incredibly, uh, like, key in a number of the agricultural strikes that happened throughout California in the 30s. Uh, You know, sometimes when we think about industrial actions in this period, we think about the general strikes that happened in factories in, you know, 34, but we don't think about how the, you know, up until that point, the the largest uh, strikes that had happened, agricultural strikes happened in California, mass strikes, thousands, tens of thousands of workers left the field, you know, in these organized actions in, uh, you know, particularly in the Great Depression before there was any kind of New Deal relief. So, you know, these lettuce workers are striking. They ask the Communist Party for help. This 19-year-old, this, they send this young 19-year-old down to help organize. And so, you know, Healy has this really key experience of, uh, in engaging with how particularly Mexican workers are bringing their experience of the revolution to uh, agricultural strikes in Southern California. 
And, and just to emphasize, Haley herself was a Hungarian immigrant or the child of immigrants. I forget. A Jewish woman from Europe, I believe. Uh, she was a Jewish woman. I She wasn't an immigrant herself. I believe her mother was. Um, she was born here. Uh, okay. Barbara Nest. Yeah. I, I mean, she's anybody who's interested in her story should look at uh, California Red, which is a, a really extraordinary uh, book about her life. Um, so Healy's, you know, a part of these agricultural actions, but Healy herself had been a key organizer in unemployed councils in Los Angeles. So, you know, I think sometimes we forget to our peril the just the degree of um, the degree of immiseration that was happening in the depression and the kind of organizing it fomented before there was ever a new deal. And quite a lot of that, you know, was being put together by the communist party. Um, and, and Healy was really key in organizing tenants. So, you know, I tell the story from her records of some of the single mothers that she helped organize that were key tenant organizers in their buildings. You know, uh, I, you know, I follow some of the actions of, like anti-eviction struggles, anti-eviction uh, movements. And, um, and and the reason I do that is to be able to help people understand the capitalist landscape that she was traversing in this period. That, you know, these, even though they're different sites, that I think, you know, if, if we were, sometimes when we classify them, we might imagine them as totally different struggles. Here are farm workers over here, here are city dwellers over here. When in fact, it wasn't just Healy moving back and forth between those spaces, the workers themselves were, you know, farm work is seasonal. It's, it's cyclical. It's not like factory work where you show up every day, you know, the beets can only be harvested at a certain period and you can move on to other crops, but there are fallow periods where, uh, you know, people have to go um, and, and figure out other ways to survive. And a, a lot of those workers uh, were in cities like Los Angeles trying to figure out how to organize to survive. And capitalists knew that. And so part of what I describe is the struggle, um, you know, essentially to break a lot of those strikes uh, in this period of the Great Depression. Uh, regional capitalists were pouring pressure on the state, compelling workers in cities to go and scab so that they could get, you know, whatever kind of meager benefits they could get in cities. And so, like, in order for any entity to organize across the capitalist landscape, they had to get a sense of how workers were being, you know, essentially uh, being deployed against each other. And so that's some of what I trace in that chapter. And how does that relate to this sort of international impact of the revolution and the, the sort of major spine of the book? Yeah, well, I mean, you, as you well know, if you're writing this new book, uh, you know, or or you look at Jessica Kim's Imperial Metropolis, there is no Los Angeles without Mexico. There are no capitalists in California without Mexico, uh, you know. And uh, you know, I talk about how some of the just, I mean, in general, U.S. millionaires built their wealth in the aftermath of 1848, investing, you know, huge fortunes in. Mexican government bonds. And this is a relationship that persists uh, throughout the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. So there's huge land holdings of uh, American businessmen in Mexico. There's, you know, nefarious ways in which, you know, say the Colorado River is being diverted to help 
American companies that are based in Mexico. So it's not simply that there are Mexican workers who carry these memories of the revolution and this experience of the revolution that are moving into California and organizing with it. That itself is an extraordinary story. But the structure itself, you know, what produces those antagonisms? Capital's transnational. Capital's global. Capital has a, a, a concrete footprint that crosses borders. And I think if you can't trace that in California, in Southern California, you, you really can't trace it anywhere. So, you know, it's an extended confrontation with the revolution. And as far as like that revolution itself was, can also be understood as a struggle uh, against the development of capital in the period. Totally agree. Let's talk a little bit about Elizabeth Catlett and and what you term her radical pedagogy. So who was Catlett? Where did she come from? How did she wind up becoming involved in, in Mexico? And what do you think that we should learn from her radical pedagogy today? Yeah, well... So the cover of the book is a print by Elizabeth Catlett. It's called, I have given the world my song. And it's from a series called The Black Woman, which she did in 1946. And I think anybody who saw this series today might imagine that it was a lot more contemporary. It's a series of several prints where she's highlighting different key black feminists, Phyllis Wheatley, Sojourner Truth. And also, Black feminist struggles as domestic workers fighting against segregation in housing, segregation on public transportation. Um, and I, you know, I mean, and, and just kind of side note, there's a picture that when I initially saw it, I thought it was Rosa Parks, uh, you know, fighting against segregation on a bus. But the print's done in 1946. And, uh, you know, from a number of different uh, friends and commentators of Catlett, uh, you know, she was known as a firebrand who herself, like she would get on these buses, particularly in New Orleans, where she taught for a bit and regularly just pull down the colored section sign and throw it out the window. Just fuck this. Right. So who was she? She, uh, Catlett, when people encounter her work, I think they inevitably go, they've seen it somewhere. Her most famous print is, a sharecropper. She was a printer. She was a sculptor. She was a teacher and she was a revolutionary. I came upon this story because I went to Stanford to look through the papers of an internationalist art collective that I talk about called the Taller de Grafica Popular. In 1945 through 46, they created a series of a hundred prints Uh, to talk about the history of the Mexican Revolution. And I was just really interested in how did artists in the aftermath of the revolution, how were they talking about it? How were they trying to depict this history visually, especially for audiences that, you know, had different levels of literacy? And in the same box as these prints of uh, Villa and Zapata and like the kind of well-known battles and skirmishes of the revolution was this series called The Black Woman, which I initially thought, was like misplaced. I was like going to go to the librarian and be like, uh, but, but I, I had to sit with this and go, why is there a series called the black woman in the same box as a series on the Mexican revolution? And the longer I looked at it, the more I realized that obviously this wasn't an accident, that there was stylistic resonance between the two series. You know, there were lithographs and similar printing processes, but there was also a kind of political resonance between the two series of images. So, you know, the ways 
in which Catlett is depicting Sojourner Truth is very similar to the way these internationalist artists uh, are depicting Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and in some of the ways that they're talking about state violence against indigenous people and dispossession. They're like, you can see in gestures and ways that they've configured people's bodies. It's very similar to the way that she's talking about lynching in the United States. So I, in, instead of just kind of pursuing the story, I went to the archive to find, I had to think, who the heck was this woman? Why was she in Mexico in this time? And what does it mean to think about the Mexican Revolution and Black feminist struggles? So I have a lot to say about Elizabeth Catlett. That was like just kind of my prelude. I feel like I just spent an hour talking about it. But, um, you know, in the chapter, I I talk about her travels. I talk about how she ends up in Mexico. And, and I talk about what it means as a challenge to the way we understand internationalism, if we think about it through Catlett herself, like imagining it in this transnational context, but also doing what a lot of Black feminists at the time did, which is putting Black women, particularly Black domestic workers, at the center of revolutionary organizing in theory, and then thinking about what changes as a result. So we're coming up uh, on our time here, and I was just wondering if you had any big takeaways that you want listeners to take away uh, from the book about organizing, about its history, about the revolution and its memory, really whatever you want. Um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity here. This is a profound moment of uncertainty, to say the least. You know, I mean, I think we're existing amid several intersecting existential crises. And I think in moments of uh, uncertainty, there's an understandable tendency to reach for the things that feel certain. I mean, I think a lot of the most reactionary ideas uh, and movements that are emerging, they fall back on pretty retrograde formulations of masculinity, violent, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist masculinity. Um, and I think sometimes when we talk about reactionary uh, thinking, it's it's easy to just sort of cast blame against our enemies. But I think that there are also tendencies on the left uh, to fall back on formulations that feel certain, that give us certainty, that give us a kind of um, unearned uh, confidence. And sometimes those are about extolling revolutionary movements uh, in earlier periods uh, as if they were offer the catch-all answers to our problems now or extolling figures from earlier periods. I, I think that part of the reason I'm emphasizing convergence space and actually, you know, the whole book, every chapter is about the making of something, how to make a dress, how to make love, how to make history, how to make a rope, right? Because I'm constantly kind of calling the reader in. How do we make the world that we want to live in? This is an active process. And I think it requires more of us than simply like consoling our our troubled minds, reaching for the formulations that make us feel strong. I, I think we gain strength together. We gain strength through organizing and we gain strength through trying to figure out the moment uh, that we're in. And if we can't develop a vision of internationalism that is as big and strong as the forces that are arrayed against us, there won't be any future. So, you know, I mean, I write this book with the <laughs> with a lot of trepidation, but a lot of hope. It's a book that comes out of experiences with movements. I've seen people fight for change. They've inspired me to fight for change. And I suppose that, you know, the nature of that book is to give that back to other people. 
Christina Heatherton, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Thank you, Danny Derrick.